This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 23rd of September 2023. It's 1700 in Beijing, 11am in Kiev, 9am here in London and 4am in Washington DC. You're listening to Monocle Radio. Monocle on Saturday starts now. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up on today's programme, we'll have a leaf through the global papers with Charles Hecker. Charles, what do you have for us? Good morning, Georgina. We're going to be looking at bribery allegations against a US senator. Rishi Sunak wants to ban smoking forever. Volodymyr Zelensky is in Canada. Tucker Carlson may be on Russian television sets, and scallops are piling up in Japan as a result of a Chinese ban on seafood exports. Very exciting. We'll be back with you in a moment. Then... The missing thread is essentially about those elements that have not been included in history. And so our goal was to actually just kind of bring them to light. Monocle's Steph Chunga explores a new exhibition telling the stories of black British fashion. And we hear about an award-winning international art installation, the Empathy Museum. All of that coming up. First, though, here's the news. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky has offered a heartfelt thanks to Canada for its assistance in the war against Russia, saying Ottawa's aid had helped save thousands of lives. Since the beginning of 2022, Canada has committed over 5.9 billion US dollars in aid to Ukraine. There are 1.4 million people of Ukrainian descent in Canada, the third most after Ukraine and Russia. The ethnic Armenian leadership of breakaway Nagorno-Karabakh says that no agreement has yet been reached with Azerbaijan on security guarantees after this week's Azeri offensive as emergency food deliveries reached the enclave's residents. The future of Karabakh and its 120,000 ethnic Armenians hangs in the balance. Azerbaijan wants to integrate the long-contested region, but ethnic Armenians say they fear they'll be persecuted and have accused the world of abandoning them. And the European Union has no intention of decoupling from China, but needs to protect itself when its openness is abused, the bloc's executive vice president, Valdis Dombrovskis, said, as both sides look to cool rising tensions over geopolitics and trade. The EU blames its €400 billion trade deficit partly on Chinese restrictions on European companies. And that's your Monocle Radio News. Charles, hello. Welcome to Monocle on Saturday. How are you? I'm doing pretty well, Georgina. Good morning and thank you for having me in the studio. Well, it's really nice to have you here and it's not like we have to bribe you or anything. (laughs) No, no, unlike certain senators that you might be referring to. Exactly. Tell us about this. This is where Middle Eastern politics and New Jersey come together. Natural bedfellows, you might say. Um, This is one of these interesting and extremely colorful bribery and corruption stories that you often read about in emerging markets and places far flung from New Jersey. But the New York Times leads the Saturday papers 
with the headline saying Menendez accused of brazen bribery plot taking cash and gold. And so this refers to New Jersey Senator Robert Menendez, who is now in the middle of his third full term in the U.S. Senate. And he is accused of taking hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash and also a handful of gold ingot bars in exchange for favorable treatment from the United States to Egypt. And that includes in the supply of weapons and other financial assistance. He's also accused accused of supporting New Jersey business people by trying to actually hamper an investigation into some of the allegations against them. We should add quite quickly that Senator Menendez robustly denies all of these allegations and says that he will defend himself. What the New York Times is doing actually is pushing the story forward because in addition to highlighting the allegations against Menendez, they make a nod to the political backdrop of this story. And that is that the governor of New Jersey um, has asked for Menendez to resign. Um, Menendez says he's not going anywhere, but importantly, he has stepped down as the head of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, um, saying that, first of all, he's going to need the time to defend himself. But secondly, since the allegations um, are, in, are in connection with um, U.S. relations with a foreign country, it's assumed that he won't be able to carry out the duties of the head of the Foreign Relations Committee. So he has stepped aside. Um, but this is an extremely dramatic allegation, set of allegations. There are three separate charges, and they're coming, of course, in the run-up to the presidential election. The last thing the Democrats need right now is a corruption scandal. But I mean, this a lot of this money was sort of found sewn into their clothing and things? That's right. Now we get to the actual <laughs> drama of all of this, um, and that is that federal agents raided the Menendez house because his wife is also included in these allegations, and she has sent a couple of naughty text messages that they have intercepted. Um, and so they broke into his house. They raided the house and they found $550,000 laying around the house, as you do, some of it sewn into the lining and hidden in pockets of clothing hanging in closets. Um, so that might be indicative of a guilty conscience if you're hiding cash um, you know, in the lining of your clothing. And then also there were these gold ingots in the house. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know about you, but I don't really have that many gold ingots <laughs> lying around the house, um, corruption or otherwise. And so um, this sort of looks like Menendez is going to have a difficult time defending himself. By the way, this is the second set of corruption allegations against Menendez in 2016. Um, he faced charges on separate separate. Uh, corruption counts, um, and it re resulted in a hung jury, uh, which leads to a mistrial. So he was essentially let off the hook right. for those charges. And I mean, it's not as if you can say, well, American politicians aren't paid enough, therefore you can understand why they might take a backhander. It's really not that at all. And in, in fact, in, in Britain, the same, of course, our prime minister is one of the richest people in the country. And although you can't, I couldn't certainly swear that his government isn't corrupt, he himself, I think, is a, is a straight man and certainly wouldn't need the money. That's right. Um, Rishi Sunak is married to one of the world's wealthiest women. Um, his wife, Akshatamurti, is the daughter of an Indian billionaire. Um, and Mr. Sunak features prominently, frankly, all over the front pages of the British press this morning. But he is um, highlighted in The Guardian under the following headline, Georgina. Rishi Sunak considers banning cigarettes for next generation. Um, that is perhaps not referring to people like you and me, but what The Guardian tells us is that the prime minister is planning on raising the age 
of legal sales of tobacco um, to such a point that sooner or later, no one will be able to buy cigarettes in the UK. I can't quite work out the maths on that. But basically, um, if you are younger um, now, the age limit that he will set this at will prevent you from, from buying cigarettes forever. This is a copy of a law in New Zealand um, that was controversial upon its adoption. And this will be controversial among smokers and non-smokers alike, um, but it's part of, as The Guardian tells us in the rest of this story, once we get past the headline about smoking, um, this, is about a, this is a story about letting Rishi be Rishi. Uh, and, and this is um, a transition in his style of governance from one of crisis management to the kind of prime minister that he might have been had he been elected under more routine circumstances. Mm. And I mean, the thing is that it's not the only uh, announcement he's made. There's this, but uh, he's also been talking about messing with education, trying to make it, I suppose, more more European, dropping A-levels. And then he made this bizarre speech about the environment where he said, it's okay, we're going to drop all these terrible things we were going to do with you for you, like having seven bit. What? None of these were ever pledges. I feel like he was saying to me, it's okay, from now on, we're going to drop the rule that says you cannot ride your unicorn outside the M25 <laughs> on a Tuesday, because <laughs> yeah. that's about as, how much sense it makes. Well, you're absolutely right. And, and, and so... Um, What the prime minister is telling us is that he's trying to get on with the business of governing according to his own vision for Britain. Um, And he needs to hurry up about that because, of course, we all anticipate a general election in the autumn of the coming year. And so you're right. There's an awful lot going on out there. Um, Rishi Sunak during the week this past week was all over uh, the newspapers all over the world because the announcement that he made about rolling back the ban on petrol and diesel driven vehicles from 2030 to 2035 made international headlines um, as a major you know, example of backsliding on, on the environmental agenda. Um, in the next few weeks, the prime minister has to make a decision about HS2 and how much money to spend on high-speed rail. Um, he wants to charge people £10 if you miss a GP appointment. And you're absolutely right. He is also planning on changing the philosophy of secondary education in the UK and changing the way students are examined at the end of their high school careers by replacing the A-levels with something that he wants to call the British Baccalaureate. Yeah. Now, he's not only on the front and the political pages, but quite often he and his wife, to be fair, make it onto the fashion pages. She's very elegant, very well-dressed. People are often commenting on how much their wardrobes cost, though, that she's she's wearing Prada to do the school run or whatever. But the main criticism about Rishi is that his trousers are too short. Yes, this is a really controversial topic because um, it is considered, as you mentioned, it's considered fashionable um, to wear slightly shorter trousers for gentlemen these days, including in the tailoring of suits. And we're meant to be showing a bit of ankle, which is now Mm -hmm. referred to these days as mankle, uh, man (laughs) ankle. Uh, But um, Rishi Sunak is vertically challenged. uh, And one of the ways that he compensates for that is for wearing shorter trousers And he might just be showing a bit too much ankle. Well, clearly he needs a bit of fashion education. So he should go off to Somerset House because a new exhibition has been unveiled there and it showcases Britain's forgotten fashion and culture. The missing thread, untold stories of black British fashion, details the work of black British designers in UK fashion. It's an interactive experience. It features work from contemporary black British designers and it highlights the work of Joe Casely Hayford, spanning over 40 years. 
years. Well, Monocle's Steph Chungu went to Somerset House and filed this report. Black British designers have been significant to UK fashion and culture, with Nicholas Daly, Bianca Saunders and Sol Nash in recent years the new generation. While they and many are household names, there are still those whose talents were not acknowledged or appreciated in the wider British fashion industry. Enter the missing thread, untold stories of black British fashion, homed at Somerset House in London, which features British culture in the eyes of black creatives. It charts the shifting landscape of black British culture and the unique contribution it has made to Britain's rich fashion design history. It's curated by the Black Orientated Legacy Development Agency, also known as BOLD. The co-founders and curators of the exhibition are Harris Elliott, Jason Jaws and Andrew Eby. Jason and Andrew spoke to me about the event and the conception of the theme, The Missing Thread. I mean, the project really is it's like it's been sort of ongoing, so it's a kind of a lived experience thing. And there was just a realisation three or four years ago that there's an opportunity to sort of elevate black fashion culture to another level. And then post-George Floyd was really an opportunity to talk about these things and for a proper conversation to be engaged with. So it, it started with a conversation with the British Fashion Council and Caroline Rush, actually, about putting on this exhibition that celebrates black culture historically. The Missing Thread is essentially about those elements that have not been included in history, in the timeline. And so our goal was to actually just kind of bring them to light, but also to tell the story of British fashion through a black lens. That was the, one of the most important things. The exhibit is split into four parts. Home, showcasing tradition and familiarity, Tailoring, presenting the work and creativity beyond a piece of garment. Performance and nightlife, each taking their own unique space while interwoven with the other. From music and literature to anime, fashion and culture. Andrew explains how it was possible to contain so much of black British culture in four parts. There was no way we could tell the whole story. So we agreed very early that one of our kind of statements is we cannot be completist. The other thing we knew that we didn't want it to be like a museum. So we didn't want it to be like, this is a history of black fashion in 1970 the center of it is this idea around culture around black culture and fashion style but it's nuanced with our struggle and when we understand that struggle like our parents will understand that struggle there's a generation that will understand that struggle even more and maybe another generation that's heard about the struggle but has never really correlated it with the arts Not just a standard exhibition, the use of images, archived fashion pieces, music and visual elements sets the missing thread apart from traditional displays. One particular image that is striking out of the exhibition is a lady with the blue hair, sitting behind a full set of lips. The image was taken by Eileen Perrier and is the forefront of the exhibit. I spoke to Eileen about the image and the origins of her collection, which is an entirely different concept compared to the missing thread. The actual series, I did it 25 years ago, and I did it at the Afro Hair and Beauty Show in Alexandria Palace, and I did a series of portraits. So yeah, I was interested in my own identity and how I kind of fitted into, into the world. And um, I remember when I was around 19, I used to wear wigs, you know, and I was inspired by my auntie who was a midwife and used to do the night shift. So she would always be wearing wigs. So that I guess I was kind of influenced by her and also my mum would wear wigs when she was going to parties and stuff like that. So that's kind of 
where the concept, I guess, of like documenting black women who I would, who you wouldn't necessarily have seen at that time in advertising, on billboards. You know, I wanted to sort of document people who I knew were out there but weren't being represented. Whereas now, as you can see, like many of the billboards that we have are now showing a diverse range of models. The end of the exhibition is a significant one. Two rooms dedicated to the work of Joe Casely Hayford, a black British designer whose work was often missing in the midst of other British designers such as Westwood and McQueen. Casely Hayford died in 2019, and this is the first time his archive is presented, a career spanning over four decades. I asked Andrew and Jason the choice to feature Casey Hayford work at this exhibit. Joe, for all of us, who were part of certainly that generation, was the go-to icon. So as we see fashion and the way we see fashion, we cannot see ourselves in fashion unless we see Joe Casey Hayford. So Joe Casey Hayford is actually the start point for so many black British designers. So any one of our generation is indebted to Joe's presence, but also his genius and tenacity. If you superimpose the map of Joe's career and the things that interested him on the map of the missing Fred and the spaces and the way we explored those themes, then you'd see a, a real kind of similarity. One kind of begets the other. Joe's interests touch on pretty much everything that we explore in this show. In addition to the archive by Casey Hayford, original commissions by contemporary black designers are woven throughout the show, celebrating the generational lineage of black creative excellence in British fashion. I asked the curators what they hoped for the public to take away from the exhibit. Here's what Andrew had to say. Black designers and black artists and black photographers have always worked in a slightly different way, where there's been a need to um, expose or talk about uh, culture from a different perspective. The place of politics in the, in the show, I'm hoping, really allows visitors to deeply understand the struggle from a different perspective. It's an exhibition that we hope in the end is, is a celebration rather than a, you know, a negative space where people feel defeated. For Monocle in London, I'm Steph Chungu. The Missing Thread Untold Stories of Black British Fashion is on until January 2024 at Somerset House in London. Charles, she was mentioning, or he was mentioning, uh, the, the uh, space of politics within fashion. And that's such an interesting juxtaposition, isn't it? Because when, for, for instance, when you look at someone like uh, Vladimir Zelensky has made such a statement by what he wears. I mean, fr from his very first appearances, he got rid of the suit and tie, the traditional thing. He's always wearing military gear. It's always a, a T-shirt kind of showing off his great uh, muscles. <laughs> Not that I'm perving much over him, um, but it's always olive green. It's, it's, he's got cargo pants, work boots. He looks like a soldier who's just nipped off the battlefield. That's absolutely right. So Volodymyr Zelensky is representing a nation at war, and he is serving as the embodiment of, of, of what that means. And, and all these, you know, th this time into the duration of the war, he has yet to revert to the typical sort of costuming of, of prime ministers and, and diplomats. And that includes when he goes on trips abroad. Uh, and so we're going over to the Toronto Star uh, because Volodymyr Zelensky is in Canada 
And what the what the star ha- the headline in the star just says five key highlights of Volodymyr Zelensky's visit to Canada, and I think that his trip to Canada, which is his first um, since the start of the war, um, is interesting because you get the sense, Georgina, that. Um, support for Ukraine is at a critical turning point, and that is that there is disappointment in the Western alliance at the progress that the Ukrainians are making in pushing back the Russians thus far. Um, and I think that that's a misinterpretation of the timeline of war and and the mismanaging, perhaps, of expectations um, in the Ukrainian offensive. Um, and funding is running low. And you even had the prime minister of Poland saying that he, they were getting a bit tired of, of supporting um, Ukraine. And so what Volodymyr Zelensky has done intentionally or otherwise is he's gone to a safe space. Mm. And that's Canada. Um, as you mentioned at the top of the of the broadcast, um, Canada has the world's largest population of Ukrainian expats, um, the diaspora outside of Russia and Ukraine itself. And so this is a fairly friendly place for him to visit. And he, of course, has met Trudeau, um, Prime Minister uh, Justin Trudeau, a number of times in the past. And Trudeau welcomed uh, Volodymyr Zelensky by promising a $650 million commitment over the next three years um, in military aid alone. And on top of that, a pledge of additional humanitarian aid. Um, and Zelensky played very much to a favorable crowd and mm. pitched to the Ukrainian diaspora in Canada. Yeah, and looked great. <laughs> Incidentally, he's a bit swole. You got to give you got to give him credit. He's working out. Uh, but Russia, of course, isn't doing so well economically, uh, and they are taking the war though onto a different level, and that is on the airwaves. Uh, and they are uh, well, they're advertising a show which may or may not be true. That's right. We're going over to the FT now under the headline of Russian State TV promotes new Tucker Carlson show. Um, And hats off to the FT, whose Russia coverage is, is consistently excellent. And one of their correspondents noticed that Russia 24... Uh, one of Russia's television channels, is promoting the debut of a Tucker Carlson show. So this enterprising FT reporter rang Tucker Carlson or sent Tucker Carlson a text message more precisely saying, what on earth is going on here? Are you doing a TV show for Russian state television? Tucker Carlson answered in a profanity that we won't mention early on a Saturday morning, (laughs) um, but that was his way of saying no. Um, What's happening here is a couple of things. It is entirely possible that Russia 24 is bootlegging Tucker Carlson's show off of Twitter or off of X, as we should be calling it now, and they're broadcasting it themselves. Um, They're putting a bit of marketing behind this by advertising it. But beyond that headline and beyond this particular incident, um, Russia state news and Russian television has long used content from Tucker Carlson and from Fox News as part of its own disinformation campaign. And the FT, of course, points this out. And what Russia does is it uses content from Fox News to show dissent internal dissent in the United States and to show that the U.S. is not a sort of homogeneous and and, and unanimous place and that um, Fox News is meant to, I suppose, represent a crumbling of um, of single thinking in the U.S., particularly when it comes to the war in Ukraine. Russia likes to show that 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 the U.S. is sort of riven by internal contradictions. And Fox News, of course, fuels that argument. And and Carlson himself, I mean, absolutely seeking to divide. Um, That's right. I mean, Tucker Carlson has built in latter days, has built his broadcast career on on being a naysayer and, and, and showing 
quote unquote, the other side um, of, of news in the U.S. Um, of course, his departure, he was fired from Fox News. I mean, there's no other way to put it. Um, and his departure came um, slightly more controversially as the part of a huge settlement um, in, in Fox's news, Fox News coverage of the January 6th attack on the Capitol, um, in which Fox News paid more than $800 million in damages. Um, but Tucker Carlson ha has been reborn on Twitter. And once your content is out there, um, I suppose you, people can try to do whatever they want with it. Absolutely. But I mean, it's just extraordinary that, that, that he, this very, very toxic brand, if you like, is getting so much, so much attention. A man, I would say, almost completely devoid of empathy. Precisely right. I mean, I mean, the more, the, 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 the less empathy Tucker Carlson shows in his public persona, uh, regrettably, the more useful he is for Russian television. Yeah. Well, let's talk about empathy because it is very, very important and a wonderful project has just opened in Brixton in London. The director of the Empathy Museum, who's the award-winning artist and curator, Claire Patey, is here to tell us more. Hi, Claire. Hello. Um, your Empathy Museum. Tell us about the project in general, first of all. Um well, the project is all about giving people the opportunity to practice the art of empathy. Um, neuroscientists suggest that empathy is something that we can get better at, but we need to do it over and over and over again. We need to practice it. So um, Empathy Museum was born out of um, a response to declining levels of empathy globally, but also um, in response to the decline of the British High Street so um, more and more shops are closing. I think there's 20% of um, vacant high street properties across the UK. And we decided to create participatory projects in the form of shops that people recognise, but to kind of subvert them and play with them so that people could come in and see the world through somebody else's eyes. And it's about perspective taking, really. Mm. And these different shops, I mean, they're fascinating. Tell us first about the shoe shop. Uh, our first project is called A Mile In My Shoes, and it is a shoe shop. But instead of buying a pair of shoes, you come in and you get fitted with a pair of shoes that belong to someone else. And they are a real person and they are their real shoes. And then the idea is that you take a walk in that person's shoes, literally, and listen to them telling you a story about their life. Um, so it's a kind of embodied experience, an embodied empathic journey that you're on but mm. you're also on a physical journey um, and it's a very intimate experience because it's someone speaking kind of just to you while you're taking that physical walk uh, on audio you've got headphones yeah on or yeah you've got yeah. an mp3 player and headphones and um, yeah. you go out and, and that's something that you've actually toured all over the world isn't it yeah I think we've been to I think 19 different countries and we've got um, eight different languages and over 600 stories from everyone from neurosurgeons to refugees to sex workers to divorce lawyers. Extraordinary. <clears throat> now, tell us about the estate agent. Uh, the estate agent was our response to um, the COVID-19 pandemic. And at that time, galleries were closed. So we thought, OK, we'll go out and we'll talk to uh, key workers, um, people nominated by the community for making a difference during COVID and people who've got a particular um, experience of the whole thing like undertakers or students who've had their exams cancelled and we did a photographic project where we took their portrait and we asked them to nominate an object that was particularly important to them during 
um, the lockdown. And then we recorded their stories and we exhibited it in an outdoor gallery where people in one street would host an image um, like a for sale sign outside their house. So you could enjoy an outdoor gallery that you might just come across and you could also listen to the stories through a QR code. And we toured that to people's streets and on housing estates. And now we're showing that also within the shop context. And again, within this this lovely space, which is in, in Brixton, you have a library. We do. We have a crowdsourced library. So we went out and did a crowdfunding campaign. But again, instead of asking people to um, give us money, we said, what book do you absolutely love that you'd love to see in a new library? And could you tell us why in less than 100 words without mentioning the title of the book? So people wrote in, they said, oh, I I love this particular book and this is the reason why. And we've displayed all the... um, descriptions of uh, the hundred word descriptions and we've covered the book so you can't judge the book by its cover and you choose a book to take out by what someone else has said about it and I guess the empathy angle there is that uh, literature um, requires a leap of imagination and that you can experience other times and spaces by taking a kind of armchair travel into other worlds. I think it sounds an absolutely amazing project, doesn't it, Charles? I'm going right away because I think that it it does three amazing things just listening to you. And that is, first of all, recontextualizing the British High Street um, and then sort of changing what our expectations are of interactivity. Because when most people call an exhibit interactive, that means it has a touch screen. And this is much more deeply and much more intensely interactive. And, And then this idea of returning meaning to this phrase of walking a mile in somebody else's shoes and then actually doing it. Um, just restores the initial intent of that phrase. It's, it sounds fantastic. Yeah, absolutely great. So you've taken over this space in Brixton. Yeah, that's right. It's an old uh, railway arch and it's been empty for about five years. And we've turned it both into a space for exhibits, but also into a space for conversation, dialogue, participatory democracy. And um, there's a whole programme of evening events around a huge table that we've called the talking table. So the idea is you can come in, you can talk to strangers, you can take part in things, um, events, workshops and so on. And uh, how can people find out more? They can come to 20 Atlantic Road in Brixton or they can go on our website uh, www.empathymuseum.com And of course international listeners people from all over the world can follow that too and, and catch up with you when you pop up in, in their cities. Yeah and the gallery's all online as well so you can see the images and listen to the stories online. Excellent. Charles what exhibitions have, have really moved you recently? Oh, um, so I'm a big I'm, I like to go to the Royal Academy um, I'm a pretty big visitor at the Tate Modern um, and, and London is such a fantastic city for museums of all different shapes and sizes I live not too far from the Museum of the Home um, which constantly has sort of refreshing and, and interesting um, exhibits that remind you of where we came from and why we why things look the way they look now um, you know I think most recently really and this is a bit mainstream I suppose but um, I'm a bit of a William Kentridge fan and, and the Royal Academy Academy was entirely taken over um, by William Kentridge this summer, and it was just a spectacular um, exhibit. And and I think also redefined what it meant to be interactive, because um, not only were you able to to see Kentridge's art, but you were to under, you were able to understand um, better how he made it and why he made it and the storytelling behind it and the reason why his art looks and feels and talks and makes noises the way it does. Um, and and that was an expansion on a previous um, Kentridge exhibit at the Museum of Modern Art in New York many, many years ago called Five Themes, which was 
part of William Kentridge's takeover of New York City at the time. Um, and, um, you know, his art is, is endlessly new and fascinating. Yeah. And I only really know his bird stuff. He's done a lot around birds. Um, that's the more recent of his work. He, he takes, um, you know, the, the sort of Bialette espresso maker um, and he reshapes them into birds and shows their their transformation from from coffee maker to bird and and back again. Um, but he's a printmaker. He's a video maker. He's a painter. Um, he makes stages. He does puppetry. Um, he's one of the d- most diverse artists of, of modern times. And and his shows, as a result, are this incredible sensory immersion. Yeah, absolutely. Um, from birds to fish, because he has, does do fish stuff, too, I must say. But it's also a way that uh, we can talk about seafood in Japan. This is a, this is, um, well, obviously, this is about uh, Fukushima and nuclear waste water. That's right. For, for anybody who's listening to this um, at the, as, as a morning broadcast and, and thinking about what to make for lunch, um, we may have some suggestions on the way. But our final paper um, today is the Japan Times, uh, where we see the headline, Hokkaido Seafood Pile up in freezers following China ban. Um, And Georgina, as you point out, this is a story about the release of treated uh, radioactive water from the Fukushima Fukushima, uh, nuclear reactor, as was, um, and the release of that water into um, the sea off of Japan has triggered a ban on seafood imports into China. And what this has done is that it shows that seafood imports um, from Japan to China dropped by 67% um, compared to a year ago. And on the island of Hokkaido, seafood exported to China used to account for 64% of the island's exports. And the overwhelming majority of that food are scallops. Hmm. And you love scallops. Yeah, I think we all need to sort of jump in and, 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 and help the Japanese economy by putting as many scallops as we can on the plate. Um, I have a particular preference for a dish that I've, I had not too, too long ago of scallops just pan fried very gently with a bit of samphire also tossed into the mix. And I, I love samphire without really understanding much about what it is and, and, and learned today that it comes from the sea. It's a bit salty. So it sets off the sweetness of the inside of the meat of the scallops. Claire, do you have a, a particular scallop recipe? Well, that sounds delicious, and they're very good for you. Um, oh, are they? Even yeah. more reason to eat scallops, then? Uh, samphire and scallops, both very good for you. Ah. Um, I don't know, pan-fried with a little bit of butter, capers, capers. touch of white wine, maybe? Mm. Mm. So I, I love the um, nigella recipe, uh, which is um, scallops and chorizo, but not, not, the, not the little cubes, the, the proper sausagey one where you chop it up uh, and then you kind of just it, it gives it a chilly bite and it makes it all go slightly pink and I think it's delicious. Mm. It's all absolutely delicious and the other thing is that it's incredibly easy to make. I think we've all named dishes that you can do in about 10 minutes. Yeah, really, really quick. I'm hungry. Should we go and have a breakfast somewhere? I think we should. <laughs> well, in that case, we'll have to finish the show. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you also to Mariella Bevan, who is our producer and our studio engineer. My guests today, Charles Hecker and Claire Patey. I'm Georgina Godwin. I'll be back with you same time next Saturday. Thanks for listening. Thank you.